0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, as you can see this morning, we are picking up a series that we left off last spring in the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, a series, as you can see from the banners from that video that we have called A Better Way. And the reason we called it a better way is because perhaps better than any other New Testament letter, if you're following on your notes, 1 Corinthians shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Now the question becomes, why did this particular church, the church at Corinth, need to learn how to be God's people in this world. Well, the first nine chapters of this letter, if you were not with us, let me just quickly summarize it. We see a church that's struggling with two things. We saw a church that's struggling internally with how to relate to one another. This was a church where there was backbiting and clicks and all kinds of disunity. But on the other side, we see a church that's struggling to know how to live as Christians in the pagan city that God had placed them in, and so they learn a better way how to be set apart as God's holy people. So over and over again, Paul is addressing these two areas, both inside and outside the church, and we've said, maybe more than any other letter in the Bible, that this one speaks to our present-day context of American Christians, because both of those things still ring true for us. We want to learn how to live as a better way, as God's people in this world, a better way, a way of love a way of unity, a way of holiness. And so this morning, we're picking that back up in chapter 10, and I'll just tell you, the rest of the letter is gonna be no different. Paul is gonna to continue to hammer this point home. He wants us to live a better way as God's people. Now, just to set the context of where we are in the letter because it's been so long, in chapter 10, we're right in the middle of this section where Paul is addressing this issue in 1 Corinthians about whether or not Christians should eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. You see, we learn that Corinth was a city that was filled with all kinds of temples, and at these temples, you could go and you could worship idols there, and as a part of that worship, you would offer a sacrifice of an animal. And so these Corinthians were thinking, this huge question was on their mind, should we be eating the meat that's been sacrificed at these temples? And as we talked about, that could happen in three ways for them, and I had this diagram way back in March, I'm going to put it back up here. They could eat meat that they had bought at the marketplace. In other words, the animal was sacrificed and then the leftovers would be brought to the market. They could be invited to one of their friends, their non-Christian friend's home, where they would be eating that meat. They might have just participated in one of these ceremonies and brought the meat to their home. Or they could actually participate in one of the sacrifices themselves. They could go to the temples and worship these idols. Back in chapter 8, we talked about that middle thing, right? That was kind of the gray area. It's a little bit of a conscience issue. Next week, he's going to give the definitive answer about meat bought in the market. But this morning, we're going to be dealing with that last one there about meat that has been sacrificed in a temple ceremony. And the question is, should Christians participate in the worship of idols at these temples? Maybe that sounds like a no-brainer for you. But here's really the argument the Corinthians have been making. And I quote, "Since Idols are nothing. Idols are nothing. What harm does it do for us to participate in these ceremonies, in these feasts? Now it's important for us to pause right here and think about the assumption that they're living under when it comes to idols. For them, idols are simply neutral things. For us, we might say money, for example. Money in and of itself is a neutral thing. And so they're arguing these idols are neutral. They're meaningless. So participating in these feasts is meaningless as well. But what Paul is going to argue in this chapter is that's a serious danger that they're running into. That's a serious way to misthink about idolatry. And more importantly, he's going to ask this question, which is just as important for us to ask today when it comes to our idols, which is, what's at stake when we set our hearts on idols? If you're on your notes, what's at stake when we set our hearts on idols? And to do that, to answer that question, Paul is going to give the Corinthians a little history lesson from the Old Testament and the people of Israel. He's going to show them what happened to them. When they strayed from the Lord and began to worship idols. Now, I love somebody who goes back to history to teach a lesson. I just wrote a dissertation on that. So I'm excited about that. So I'm going to encourage you to grab your Bible and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And as we say, every week we have Bibles underneath the seats there. We want to make them available to you. If you'd like to grab one of those, you can find this on page 929 of those black Bibles. I'm just going to say, here's how we're going to break it down. Pretty simple. We're going to walk through the text together and look at how Paul uses history to help the Corinthians understand their present situation. And then I want to show at the end, though the issue may not be the same, eating meat sacrificed to an idol, Paul will set forth some principles about idolatry that are timeless and just as important for us today. Now, before we actually dig in the text, I just got to admit something to you. This week, I was kind of complaining to Jeff because he gave this awesome message last week on acknowledging the Lord, and it was so encouraging. And this morning, we come to a text that's all about warning. It's like serious stuff. I'm like, great, I get to be the one who does the, the warning. But God gave me this little picture. Maybe you've seen one of these before. You ever seen one of those? Now when you come to a stop sign, you can have one of two responses to that stop sign. Your first response could be, who is the killjoy who is ruining all my fun and put this stop sign here? Or number two, you can think, huh, there must be something I need to pay attention to at this intersection. I'm grateful for the fact that somebody thought about that and put this stop sign here. Now I'm just going to say, Passages like the one we're looking at this morning have the same kind of interpretation for us. We either say, God is such a killjoy. Why is he taking all the fun out of my life? Or we can say, I'm grateful to God that he gives us these warnings in Scripture so that we can learn to live a better way. Obviously, I've been praying for you this week that you would think of it as the latter. But let's look at this warning passage together, if you will, by starting in chapter 10, verse 1. I'm going to start by reading all the way through verse 5. It says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that Christ was that rock. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." So right here we see Paul is beginning to compare the Israelites to what the Corinthians and even us still today experience as Christians. And he does that by pointing out several blessings that the Israelites actually got to experience. First, we see they were led by God himself in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he says similarly, think about this. If you're a Christian, you are led by God, by the very spirit who indwells in you. Number two, they were baptized as God's covenant people by walking through the Red Sea. Obviously, this doesn't mean that they were immersed in literal water. Baptism is just suggesting they were God's covenant people under the leadership of Moses. And in the same way, as Christians, when we are baptized into Christ, we're promised that God in Christ will lead us and guide us in all ways. And then finally, they experience the blessing of God giving them manna from heaven to eat and water from a rock to drink on occasions when they otherwise would have died from hunger or thirst. And similarly, we have all our needs met fully in Jesus Christ and we remind ourselves of that on days like today when we take the bread and we take the cup of the Lord's Supper. We remind he's provided what we need. But here's the point Paul wants to make. It's in verse 5. If you're on your notes... None of Israel's blessings guaranteed the promised land. None of Israel's blessings guaranteed the promised land. In fact, only two adults from that generation made it into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua. Don't miss it. Some people argue this passage is about losing our salvation. I really don't think that it's what it is because the people of Israel were still under the covenant promise of God, but here's what happened. They did not get to experience the fullness of God. Because they died in the wilderness. God envisioned something much greater for them. And yet, because of their disobedience, and we're gonna see what that was in the next section, Paul is making an important point that we would do well to heed today. This is the stop sign. If you're on your notes, just because we are in Christ doesn't guarantee the fullness of Christ. I thought of a way to try to simply illustrate this, so bear with me here, but I want you to imagine yourself going to a pool. We did that a lot this summer. Now, there's two ways you can be in a pool. You can stand in the shallow end of the pool and never move. I mean, technically speaking, you're in the pool, right? Or you can enjoy the pool for how it's supposed to be enjoyed. You can dive in it. You can jump in it. You can play basketball. You can do all the things that the pool is intended to do. So that's the picture Paul's given here. The Corinthians are arguing that, listen, we're in the pool, so we can pretty much do whatever we want with the freedom God has given us, including attending these idol feasts, but Paul is saying, no, the abuse of that freedom is going to lead you to missing out on the promised land, or the fullness of life that God desires for you to experience. So look to the Israelites of old. We still can today. They experienced these incredible things. If you read the Old Testament, it's amazing. They experienced redemption and baptism and God's continuing help, this manna that came from heaven every morning. And yet, all of them perished in the wilderness except for two. How we live in the pool really matters especially when it comes to idolatry. So don't make the same mistake that the Israelites did and lose out on the promises God has for you. Paul makes this abundantly clear in the next verse, which is on your notes. Would you read it out loud with me there, it says? Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Paul wants us to understand that the Bible is more than just history, though it is history. It's history that has a lesson for us, or a word for it is, it's a type. A type is something that points to a larger lesson. I'll give you an example. The Exodus as a whole is a type of what Christ accomplished on the cross. It's an example, right? The people, yes, in history were freed from slavery, but that's also a type of Christ freeing us from our slavery to sin. And so he's saying, look, look to the Israelites, Use history to your advantage as a lesson for your generation. Their example is there to do what? He says to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. Here's the warning. Starting in verse 7, he's going to list some of these evil things that the Israelites set their heart on and kept them from experiencing all God had for them. The first one is in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. He's citing Exodus 32, 6, when Moses is on the Mount Sinai, receiving the law of God, and what are the people of Israel doing? They made a golden calf, and they began to worship it and bow down to it. Don't do that, he says. Second, he refers to Numbers 25, where the Israelite men engaged in sexual activity with Moabite women. Verse 8 we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. How about that for a warning? Third, he alludes to Numbers 21, where the people complained against Moses and all the hardships of the desert. Verse 9, we should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. This idea of tempting or testing God is basically just saying, I'm going to see how far I can take my freedom. And Paul urges the Corinthians, don't test the Lord with your freedom. And then finally, this is what the Israelites were most famous for. Verse 10, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Over and over again, the Israelites, even though they experienced all these blessings, all these amazing things in their life, grumble and complain against God and against Moses. Paul brings it home in verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. In other words, stop sign. These Israelites serve as a stop sign for us when it comes to how we use our freedom. If you're on your notes there, their failure is a warning to us for what we set our hearts on. And here we are up against it again. You can either be here this morning thinking, what a killjoy God is, or maybe I need to pay attention to something. Maybe he's warning me for my own good. Now, starting in verses 12 and 13, he moves into application. He says, so, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the situation in Corinth, arguing that these pagan temple feasts that they think are meaningless are actually leading them down a similar path as the Israelites walked. These feasts involved, think about it, idolatry. Oftentimes these temples were full of sexual immorality. They put the Lord to the test with their freedom and what it was doing in the churches was creating all kinds of disunity and grumbling and murmuring. So I think it's important for us here just to pause for a second and answer the question I wonder if you've been asking since the beginning. If all this is true, why would the Corinthians even put themselves in this situation? Maybe you heard the whole context this morning. You're just like, I can't even wrap my mind around the fact that these Christians would want to go to these temples and worship these idols. It's a great question. And it really leads to the first principle I want to set forth about idolatry that applies to us still today. If you're on your notes there, there's always a why behind our idols. In other words, there's always something behind the something that's motivating us. To us, living in the 21st century, we read this and think, this makes no sense. It's pretty black and white. Why would they be putting themselves in this situation to go to these temples and worship these idols? It seems so clear, but I wonder if these Corinthian Christians were to come to America today and observe our lives as American Christians, do you think they might say the same thing about stuff? Wait, why are you doing that? Why are you putting that thing in your life? We're going to talk more about the why of our idols later, but let's look at why. It's quite simple for the Corinthians why they're going to these feasts. You see, by not partaking in these temple feasts, they were losing their standing in society. I'll say that another way. Because idol worship was at the core of the city of Corinth, I told you, full of temples, If they were to abandon the practice of no longer going to these feasts or participating in these idol worship ceremonies, they would be ostracized from the community. Peter actually explains the situation well in 1 Peter 4. This was true for all the first century churches. Look at what he says. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised. Who's the they? People who live in the world, people who don't know Christ. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. For the Corinthians to step away from these idle ceremonies would mean they would have abuse heaped upon them. And so you can see, let's give them a little grace here. In the face of such pressure, if you're on your notes, the Corinthians are being tempted to compromise their faith. Why? Because they want to fit in. That's the why. The Corinthians are being tempted to compromise their faith to fit in. Unfortunately, what it's doing, it's dividing their hearts. And the same thing happens to us with our idols. In verse 13, Paul assures them, though, this is good news, that no matter what tempting or testing comes your way, It will always be met with God's faithfulness. Would you read verse 13 on your notes out loud with me there? It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. I love the first part of that, right? Oftentimes when it comes to temptations, we think, Oh, I'm the only one who's ever experienced this. No, no look to history all the temptations have been common to mankind that gives me strength that gives me hope the question is when those temptations come am I going to compromise or am I going to trust that God is faithful and will provide what I need to stand firm and persevere by the way I think this may be one of the most misquoted verses in scripture it is not saying that when temptation comes your way that God will magically make it disappear I wish it did say that that would be good news What it's saying is when that temptation comes, when those times of testing come in your life, he will give you the strength, the courage, the faith to stand up under it no matter what. When I was in high school, my friends, when they turned 16, life changed. And my group of friends became a group of partiers. And so I found myself going to these parties, and gosh, it was really tempting to want to fit in the same temptation the Corinthians had, because no temptation is not common to mankind. But it was at those parties where I really experienced this truth. God gave me the courage I needed to stand up. God gave me the strength I needed to be different. God... Put my heart thinking, this is not ultimately going to be what's fulfilling to me. And so I was able to stand firm in those moments. Have you experienced that, Christian? Have you experienced him giving you the strength you need when temptation or testing comes your way? This is a promise of Scripture that you can bank on. Paul closes this section getting specific now to the Corinthians situation. We'll start by reading verse 14 on our notes out loud. It says... Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm going to go all the way to verse 22. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf." Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? A lot going on here, but let me just sum it up in this way. It's impossible to go to the temple and worship idols on Saturday then come to church on Sunday and take part in the Lord's Supper. Those things do not mix together. Therefore, you got to stop saying that when it comes to these idols, they're simply neutral things and you're engaging in meaningless activities. No, you're actually sacrificing to evil spirits and thus establishing fellowship with them. And you can't have fellowship with them and with the Lord. You see, the Corinthians want fellowship to be a both-and thing. I want to have fellowship with my society, with the people in my world, with these idols— But then I also want to have fellowship with God on Sunday morning and fellowship with the church. Paul says, fellowship with the Lord is an either or thing. You can't set your heart on this and also set your heart on this. Why? Because if you're on your notes, idolatry breaks our fellowship with the Lord. As I've been studying it this week, I really have come to the conclusion that idolatry is the root of all other sin. I used to think pride was the root of all other sin, but really pride is just another form of idolatry because it's placing myself as an idol. And this could really use an entire message series, but as we step into, out of this text now, here's what I want to do. I kind of want to apply what we've learned this morning to our situation today because I don't think any of us are tempted to go to a temple and make sacrifices to idols, right? I think we're good on that one. I do, however, think that there are idols in our face every single day, and we're tempted to compromise just as the Corinthians were. Of course, you know I'm not talking about statues made of wood and gold. I'm talking about something much deeper. And so what does it look like for us to flee from idolatry, as Paul says? First, let's define what an idol even is. If you're on your notes, an idol is anything more important than God for our, you fill in the blank. Our happiness, our meaning, our security, our identity. St. Augustine, years ago, obviously, since he's dead now, said sin is disordered love. That is a brilliant understanding of what the Bible teaches about idolatry. Idolatry is loving things out of order. It is an excessive desire for even good things, things like material possessions, things like a career, family, marriage, achievements, work, independence, a political cause, human approval, romance, children. None of those things are evil in and of themselves. But when they get a place in our lives where we derive our blank happiness, security, provision, popularity from them, then we're giving them the place of an idol. This is why I wanted to point out early on in this message, we must always start with the why question when it comes to the what question, right? For example, we talked about money. Is money automatically an idol in your life? No, money is money, it's pieces of paper. However, I have to ask the why question sometimes, and I'll just be totally honest with you. What does money mean for me? Well, for me, money means security. Is the desire to have security a bad thing? Absolutely not. However, when I make that desire for security my ultimate thing, and I think money's the thing that's going to bring that security for me, I have just turned money into idolatry. Instead of seeing Christ as the one who can bring security, I have put my hope in a material possession. Food works the same way. Relationships work the same way. Our children can sometimes work the same way. None of those are bad things. They can do bad things sometimes, but none of them are bad in and of themselves. But when we're using those things to fulfill our greatest desires, we're giving them a place that only belongs to the Lord. We believe, oh, they're going to give me personal fulfillment or comfort or power or control or happiness, but have you learned yet Idols will always let you down. They'll always let you down. They'll always leave you feeling empty. Always leave you wanting more. And so again, let's talk about the Corinthians. What idol did they actually set their hearts on that would lead them to compromise their faith? It was the idol of popularity. The temple feasts were just a means to a greater desire to not lose out on popularity, they wanted to fit in. Now here was what was tricky. None of them were saying, none of them, I want this instead of Christ. What they were saying is I want this plus Christ. I want this plus Christ. Tragically, that's what happens. Idolatry then leads us to this kind of double life, or if you're following on your notes, idolatry will ultimately divide our hearts. Title of this message. This is why Paul issues warning after warning in this passage. Don't set your heart on evil things. Dear friends, flee from idolatry. Why? He knows what's going to happen. If we set our hearts on idols, we're not going to have Christ as our overmastering desire in our life. I will give you a ridiculous example so that you know this is true. I want to lose 30 pounds. That is my desire. I also have a desire to eat four quarter pounders with cheese. Yeah, we laugh at that. It's ridiculous. You can't lose 30 pounds and have that desire and then also eat four quarter pounders of cheese. (laughs) That's how it works. The Corinthians, they wanted to lose 30 pounds and they also wanted four quarter pounders with cheese. They wanted to go to these temple ceremonies. Then they also wanted to come on Sunday and still have fellowship with the Lord. And Paul says, no, You have to get to your root desire. Somebody wrote it. I read it this week. This really struck my heart deep. Idolatry is nothing more than adultery. It's that serious. Why? If you're on your notes, God is jealous for our whole heart. God is jealous for you. That's good news. That is why he issues warnings like this. He doesn't want you to have a divided heart. He doesn't want you to end up empty. He doesn't want you standing in the shallow end of the pool. He wants you to enjoy the life you were intended to live. Many of us are in an adulterous relationship and we don't even know it. <laughs> I'm one of them. Cheating on God And God says, I want a monogamous relationship with you because that's the only way to have a fulfilled life, Steve. And so how do we flee from those things in our life? How do we get to the idols of our heart? Well, I'm going to say this for a third time. You have to get to the why. You have to get to the desires behind the actual things. Or as I said earlier, what is the why behind the what? So I'll ask some questions for you. Why do you work the way you do? What causes you to eat or drink the way you do? What's the why behind the what? Why do I relate to my spouse the way I do? Why do I put my children up on a pedestal the way that I do? Do I often say things like, if I only had this then, or if I were only like this, then this would be true in my life. What are our desires pointing to? What is our end goal? I got to tell you answering those questions that's tough work but it will get down into the deep layers of your heart and so what does it look like to flee from idolatry number one there to flee from idolatry we must ruthlessly expose the idols of our hearts to the light we must ruthlessly expose the idols of our hearts to the light Paul says in Ephesians 5 11 and 13 look at the screen here have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated, it actually becomes a light. Do the hard work. Do the hard work of asking the why question. Bring it out into the light so that the Holy Spirit of God can expose it in your life and heal you. Some of us hear this and we're like, oh, I don't want to do that. This sounds bad. If you were working all day in the yard, doesn't a shower sound really nice after that? That's all this is. It's just saying, Lord, I'm going to expose my heart to you. I'm going to trust that you have the best life possible for me. And I want to expose these whys. Why my desire continues to come back after this or after this or after this. So many of us move along in life never asking the why question. One of the great things about communion is it's supposed to do that very thing. It's supposed to give us an opportunity to take some time out of our crazy, chaotic lives, slow down and examine our hearts. Paul actually said that's part of what communion is in the very next chapter. He writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So that's what I'm gonna have you do here in a few moments. Before we take communion together, we're gonna just expose our hearts to the Lord, trusting he is a good God. He is a faithful God. He is a God who is not ready to hammer you. He is a God who is ready to love you and to help you get into the deep end of the pool. Second way to flee from idolatry, though, I want to make it this more positive, is to ruthlessly run toward the Lord. Like, duh, right? Make him the greatest desire of your life. The context of 1 Corinthians 10 is the last part of 1 Corinthians 9, which I know was many months ago, so let's remind ourselves what he wrote right before this chapter. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified from the prize. What's Paul saying? He's saying, having Christ as the desire of your life is not just going to happen to you. He compares the Christian life to a race. At our church, we compare it to a fight. We're fighting. It is a fight to make Jesus Christ the center of my life, the desire of my heart. I can't just show up to a marathon one day and go, I'm going to win this thing. No, I have to train. And in the same way, if you're on your notes, the Christian life is an intentional training of our desires. People don't understand this, but we can train our desires. Just like you can train for a race, you can train what you set your heart on. Psalm 37.4 says this. Let's read it out loud on the screen. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you believe that? The real desires of your heart will come when you take delight in the Lord. But as we learn in our Names of God series, God will not force himself on you. He waits to be wanted. But the promise is the same today as it was for the Israelites and for the Corinthians. It's the promise Jesus gave every person who would come and follow him in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I'm telling you, that's what idols do. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Is that what you want? Is that the true desire of your life? Not just lip service? Then it's gonna mean organizing your life around spiritual practices that orient your desires toward the Lord. What am I talking about? I'm talking about being in the Word. I'm talking about prayer. I'm gonna mention the F word here. I'm talking about fasting. What better spiritual discipline to break ourselves free from the idols in our life than fasting? I'm talking about surrounding yourself in intentional community with other believers who can speak truth and grace into your life. I'm talking about singing. I'm talking about coming to church and gathering together as God's people. All these things that we can train ourselves in, the very same things Jesus trained himself in. As we do that, I promise what Jesus promised in John 10.10. 10 you will find the fulfillment that you're really searching for. We won't just be in the pool. We'll be enjoying the pool the way we were meant to. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to issue these kinds of warnings to us. And again, I'm praying right now, aware that there may be some people who hear this and think, Oh, You're an angry God. You're out to get us. Would you dispel that lie from them? Just as a stop sign serves as a warning for our good. There are places in scripture that are there for our good, though they're hard to hear. We confess to you that our hearts are idol factories. But we also say to you, we want to set our greatest desire on you. So as we prepare to do that, as we take communion, let's do the hard work of asking the why, exposing ourselves to the light, the light of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.